I'm David Demchuk, the author of the experimental queer horror novel Red X. Many readers think queer horror is just for queer people. I'm here to tell you it's not. We have the same dreams. We have the same fears. Red X tells the story of gay men who are being taken from their friends and family by an ageless supernatural being. But it's also my story, and the story of friends that I have lost over the decades. Join me in Red X as we explore my darkest fears together. Red X is published by Strangelight, an imprint of Penguin Random House, and is available at fine bookstores everywhere. An agency that sends social workers into the homes of grieving families to impersonate dead loved ones. The kind old woman who saved a teenager's life, but who now finds herself haunted by the weight of a cheated suicide and the daughter of a candlestick maker as she tries to survive a painful existence after her father's execution for making human chandeliers of drunken cowboys. These stories and more, ranging from supernatural to the frighteningly domestic, splatterpunk to the weird and cosmic, stain the pages of Cut to Care, a collection of Little Hurts by Aaron Dryers. These are stories about caring too much in a world that doesn't always care for you back. Also featuring an exclusive introduction by writer-director Mick Garris, creator of Masters of Horror. Cut to Care by Aaron Dries. A collection of little hurts. Out now. The curator of horror, Chance Forshee here, to tell you about Ghost Eaters. Hey everybody, my name is Clay McLeod Chapman and I am the author of Ghost Eaters. Ghost Eaters is all about a haunted drug. Pop a pill, see the dead, but once you start seeing the dead, the dead can see you. That is Ghost Eaters and it's on shelves September 20th from Quirk Books. Wanna get haunted? <laughs> Welcome to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, and I am joined always by my co-host, Brian LaFaro. Say hi, Brian. Hello, everybody. And today, we are joined by a man that we have wanted to come on for some time now. He is a fellow New Englander, Paul Tremblay. Say hello, sir. Hello, sir. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, Um no kidding. We've wanted to have you on for some time, man. It's it's first off, there's a lot of people from Mass, and I didn't know that mm. until I until I moved to, to New Jersey <laughs> about five years ago. So I, I, that's kind of a bummer. But then yeah. you got you got new ones like um in, in the mix like uh Gretchen and uh, Eric. And joining us is Mr. John Langan. He has been on Yay. episode. 113 was just me, not Brennan. Brennan didn't join because he didn't want to. And episode 140, Dark Stars with John F.D. Taff and Josh Mallerman. Say hello, John Langan. Guys, guys, there is a new Menudo document. They are still around. 
it's on HBO Max. It's called something like Menudo Forever, which is both. I don't know. Is it great or is it like a living death? That's the best of all the a, opening wow. lines. That was not one I expected. That's the best <laughs> opening line. Well, right. well, given given the given the importance of popular music to to Paul's <laughs> new novel, I thought I would embrace that. Right? Yeah. So you know, did Menudo start in the eighties, late eighties? I can't remember. They are eternal. They are eternal. <laughs> they are eternal. That's that's when when Jesus was born. Menudo were singing the lullabies <laughs> to him. When Moses came down from the mountain, Menudo were singing at the foot of the mountain. We've reached a point in the relationship with John where now he doesn't give a fuck about us in the sense where we're not going to have professionalism ever. Mm-hmm. And he's still holding a grudge against Brennan. Is he here? Is he, I haven't <laughs> seen him yet. We had an agreement, Patrick. We had an agreement, okay, about that guy. We killed okay? him. I was Paul. like, I'll, I'll come on for Paul because, you know, but, but I mean, come on, man. We're just... borrow better not say shit. <laughs> there, that mo- there he is. Yeah, mm-hmm. Paul's like this was going to be a great interview, and now it's not. <laughs> no, I, this is great. I'm enjoying it. I uh, I want to know more about Menudo. <laughs> well, they sprang to prominence in the early days of the universe. <laughs> I'm interested in what got Mr. Tremblay in har- into horror. Good segue. Yeah. Menudo. It was definitely, definitely Menudo. Menudo. <laughs> <laughs> um, geez, so I guess, I mean, uh, I, I would credit, um, hey, I don't know how old you are, Patrick, or Brennan. 30, I assume, assume you're 30, much younger 33. than me. 33. Oh, you're really? Way, way younger. Uh, I like that he's wearing his Celtics uh, jersey to yeah, run him. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I live, I used to grow up, uh, like my hometown's about 30 minutes from where Paul grew up. Nice. Yeah. Bridgewater, what up? <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off. David Lane, you're right. rubbing off on me. No, no, it's okay. Uh, so uh, I, I mentioned the age New England thing because in the late 70s, early 80s, pre-cable television. Oh, my God, I'm freaking old. Uh, there was a program on, on weekends called Creature Double Feature. You know, so people of an age in New England, really, that that, that show holds a special place in our hearts. Um, so every Saturday, the first movie would always be a kaiju movie. Um, so that's what brought me in, you know, because I don't know, as most little kids, including my own, love dinosaurs, have a dinosaur sort of obsession phase. Mm-hmm. And so dinosaurs, you know, led me into Godzilla, you know, because to me, Godzilla was just like an awesome dinosaur, like the coolest one, you know, who's actually around and could breathe fire um, and fight the smog monster. And then the second movie was always uh, like a 50s B movie or a hammer horror movie, usually black and white, usually like attack of you know, attack of the colossal man, attack of the giant leeches, attack of the, the killer shrews, anything with attack in the title is pretty much the second movie. Oh, and as a kid, those movies, as, as goofy as they are now, you know, would terrify me, give me nightmares. So I always had like this, <laughs> I'm attracted to it, but also like really scared very easily by horror. So for me, it was, you know, from there, my town, uh, it was an early adopter of cable television. So Man, I just spent my wasted youth either shooting hoops by myself in the backyard or or watching HBO because then HBO was just showing the same movies over and over again. Um, you know, and watching horror movies as well. Brennan, go, go ahead because uh, I actually want to hear what your follow up is. Paul, what got you into math? I've never been. It's never been put to me quite that way, Brennan. What got me into math? It was just always my best subject in school. Um, 
you know, I, I, there's definitely something in my brain that loves numbers. Like as a kid, I, I loved baseball, especially the stats. Like I didn't play D and D mainly because I didn't have any friends, <laughs> but what I did play was the sports D and D version uh, called baseball Stratomatic, where, uh, you know, you would have dice and charts and you would have player cards and what you rolled it, you know, to determine if it was a single, if you could take extra bases and stuff like that. So that was a game that I played, you know, with my brother and my father, you know, we, we, we did manage to snag a few kids in, but anyway, all that's to say is like, I loved baseball statistics. There was a time in my life where I probably knew every uh, cumulative baseball stat, you know, I, actually that time would be in the eighties. <laughs> um, I've sort of lost a uh, step with those statistics. So yeah, there was definitely like a love of numbers sort of just, that was just there. And in school, I was just good at math. So I just sort of stuck with it. because I didn't know what the hell I was going to do when I went to college. Do you really give a shit what a diamond to math or are you just trying to be well, You know what? I do. Let me, <laughs> let me continue, please. Um, so I, what, what I find interesting about that is, you know, there's a lot of, of in the writing. So many of them, you know, you do see they teach film, they teach English. Um, I teach music. Mm. Um, the kind of, you know, I, and I kind of roll that in with the creative aspect, whereas I feel like, you know, the math and uh, the the creative side, I feel like those are two different parts of the brain. But again, that's my opinion. I, yeah. I, I'm interested in your thoughts on that, how the two tie together. I mean, I think classically, it definitely is two parts of the uh, different parts of the brain. But at the same time, um, as I've gotten older, I have found there, I think there is quite a bit of overlap. And I'm actually, I've learned more watching my son make music about the connect the artistic connection because he he was not a good math student but he's really excellent at composing music and you know he knows rhythms he knows where things are supposed to fit and you know with his you know production software like it, it seems all very uh i would say mathematical like engineer mathematical actually applying math which i suck at i can only do like <laughs> the theoretical that no one cares about math um yeah, I mean, there are a few of us math writers out there, like Stuart Onan, who, who's a very good friend and really been a mentor to me. Like he was an engineering major as an undergrad before, you know, he he started writing. So I don't know, like every once in a while, I'm pleased to, to come across sort of like a math or a STEM science kind of writer. I mean, I guess there's a lot more in the science fiction field, but who cares about them? <laughs> <laughs> well, quick aside, I mean, you can't really separate music from math, in my opinion. I think the two are so interconnected. Um, yeah. But, I, you know, regardless of whether you teach English or math or music or whatever, um, I think that there's such, I think one of the reasons you see so many educators that kind of go into writing is I've always felt like um, when you see so many kids during the course of a year, and a lot of it is in limited spans of time, you know, I see, I see kids for 45 minutes a week, once a week. Um, you get to kind of see these little glimpses, but kind of understand the deeper characteristics. And I think it's such a valuable skill that you can kind of carry over into write, uh, writing. It's almost like kind of the tip of the iceberg idea. It's like you can see, you know, just this much and kind of extrapolate the rest. And I, I wonder if you've kind of always found that from, you know, your student body. Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it, Brennan. I've never really thought of it in those terms, but I think you're right. Especially like in my case, I, I often would have students as freshmen in geometry, and then I would have a handful of the same ones when I was teaching uh, calculus later. And just to see like, you know, these different humans from when I, you know, it was still like their sameness. There was still some of their same personality, but to see them as almost like full-grown adults compared to what they were as, you know, goofy freshmen in high school, it was you know, pretty amazing and also sort of informative for the writer part. 
the thing I usually say, which I still think is true, is being around students is a great lesson in voice uh, for me. And just like how, like I'll hear the students and John can talk about this too, because you know he's very good at riffing on <laughs> riffing on the the slang that his students use and, and wields it against them like a cruel, cruel taskmaster that he is. Um, but, you know, the fun part is like, you'll see like every three or four years with each new sort of crop of kids as they you know move on and graduate, you'll see this group has a set of slang words and some of them will be regional. Some of them will be national. Like, you know, especially now that everyone's interconnected, there's national slang that, that, that gets passed. But you see it sort of get whittled down. You see it get whittled down to like not only regional, you know, Massachusetts, um, but it'll get like school specific because my school is a pretty small school. And it's just kind of interesting to see those, you know, vocabulary petri dishes sort of play out. Um, and I definitely, you know, try to pay attention, you know, to what they're saying and how they're saying it and, you know, take advantage of it. It does, Linda. You know, I... <clears throat> Um, one of my favorite things that you've written is Head Full of Ghosts, as, as is a lot of people. And one of the things that really brought that book to life was uh, the way that you wrote The Two Sisters. And I feel like there's a way of understanding and approaching that, that, you know, you've certainly read books by people who write dialogue for children and have absolutely no idea how children talk. And you can tell, you know, two pages into it and if you lose that authenticity, it doesn't matter how good the story is because nobody's investing in it. Um, and, and I do think that is a very, very valid uh, observation is just understanding the way that kids communicate. I mean, you can think, Oh, you know, I remember when I was 15, but number one, you know, even for me, that was, that, that was 20, 25 years right. ago. Um, I'm bad at math, but um, <laughs> it's, so it, it it's kind of through a blurry lens. Um, and if you don't have that regular interaction, you know, or even just like a limited one with your own kids, you just can't really aspire to that authenticity. Right. Well, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's funny, that book. Uh, so eight-year-old Mary's voice was definitely 95% my daughter, Emma, who was Mary's age at the time when I was writing it. Um, and with a little bit of my my son Cole mixed in, so much so that that was the last book of mine that my wife has read, <laughs> uh, because she was so upset by that book, um, which I get. Uh, you know, when when people know me, it's you know when I say people know me, like people in my family, it's hard to read. You know, I, I got to be honest. Sometimes, like some of my favorite responses, like I've had a few people when they read like Disappearance of Devil's Rock, and like, wow, those teen characters are really annoying. I'm like, yeah. 13, 14 year old teenage boys are really annoying. <laughs> that was sort of what I was going for. So, but I, I appreciate that. Uh, and so like, it feels like I'm at actually almost a, at a crossroads a little bit, just because my, my kids are older. Like my son is going to be Jesus 22 in September and my daughter's going to be a senior in high school. So I'm definitely becoming more and more removed, you know, from them being literal, uh, li uh, excuse me, smaller kids or, or younger kids. And this year I'm taking a year off of teaching. So I don't know. I feel like I'm edging towards something else because I've spent, you know, so many books writing about kids and parents. So I don't know what that is. Tell I'm me, John, what is it? I'm it's it's uh, stories about uh, depressed, middle-aged white men. <laughs> yeah. Stuck in their talking, house. Are you talking about clerks about or clerks too? Or? <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, that's exactly it. Oh my God. This was, uh, this was, a, oh man. Yeah. 
Yeah, the slang is funny, right? I, I mean, when I when I first started um, four years ago teaching secondary school, it was um, facts. That was a big one. That was how you said something was true, facts. And if it was really true, it was dead ass, I think, which apparently means like the center of the target, not the center mm. of your ass or a necrotic <laughs> ass or something like that, you know? And then if something was really good, it was fire um, or fuego, some of my kids mm-hmm. said. And then uh, more recently, it's been if something and if something was um, extreme, it was OD, like overdose. And now if something is extreme, it's out of pocket. Um, and I tried to get I tried to turn that into oop. I was like, you mean it's oop? And they were like, no, it's not oop. And I was like, what about oops? Out of pocket, seriously. And they were like, stop. <laughs> oh, like and please stop. <laughs> and um, dope came back. Dope has made a comeback. Because that's dope, man. Um, I think your school is stuck in the 90s somewhere. I don't know. It just, it's, <laughs> it's sort of, well, because we, we draw, you know, like, like we, uh, geographically speaking, we draw on an even bigger uh, area than your school does. So yeah. I, I think it's like a mix of kids coming from right. largely from, from New York city, but you know, from California, from Massachusetts. And, and so you get this weird kind of, of, uh, melding of, of things. Uh, when we used to have um, a bigger Chinese population, an international population, there were also a lot of like Chinese curse words thrown in there as well. Of course, all the kids learned. So they learned how to call each other things. And and I never could quite figure out what was the greeting and what was the curse word. So I just didn't say anything. Uh, for, for me, I, I would just add one word. Uh, so mid was big with our, our freshmen this year. That's mid. Mid. Uh, which means like middle, but it's really a negative connotation. Okay. And I learned a way I would have preferred not to have learned because uh, my daughter, Emma on TikTok, she's like, yeah, I saw, you know, on TikTok, there are people describing disappearance of devil's rock as mid. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Like, don't tell me this stuff. Like I try to curate right. my life to avoid like randos, like, you know, crapping on my books. And my teenage daughter is telling me that my book is mid on TikTok. Thanks. Wow. Mid that's yeah, that's <laughs> tough. That's tough. You've been TikTok, man. Apparently uh-huh. you can be ratioed too, and you don't want to be ratioed. Is, wait, what? Is I know it, that one. I understood right. that reference. <laughs> Thank you, Captain America. <laughs> my my kid's only uh, two and a half, so like I don't know what I like. The last updated slang word I knew was like slapped and uh or slaps. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, that still shows up every now and again. Yeah. So what's ratioed? Because that that doesn't make sense in the context you, of me. You don't want to be ratioed. That's all I'm saying. You don't. It's it's. They tried to convince me it was a sort of a harmless kind of like uh, if someone you know you you um, repost something on on Twitter say and it gets more the the uh, the original gets more likes than yours does that than your repost does. But that's not what it means. Reminds okay. me of this time in high school when this kid had um, one word under his his senior picture of his yearbook, and that was. Um, <laughs> Oh God, my mind just went forgot that one word. I forgot that one word. (laughs) (laughs) Start with the failed. His mission mission of the story. (laughs) Klaatu Varata. Right. (laughs) Did you did you get it right? Did you get it right? Well, most of it starts with a B. It's a negative connotation. Uh, okay, you know, fuck it. I, I just right. like the thought. I like the thought. This kid crafted all his time, thinking no one will be able to forget this. Yeah. And now, like twenty years later, it's like actually, <laughs> the ultimate dig. All True right. story in my high school yearbook, my freshman year of high school, 
the kid who did the art for it, he did all of these. Uh, they were also like uh, like a knight riding a dragon, right? Okay, that was kind of cool. And they had these these long shadows. Um, uh, each each picture, each class had a different picture of the knight on the dragon, and the the dragon was casting shadows. And the shadows were drawn as individual lines. And if you tilted the yearbook up and you looked along the, the page, you could see that the shadows were actually spelling out messages about the Dean of Discipline and what a dick he was. <laughs> <laughs> that kid was expelled. Wow. Oh. I, re- I remember the word. It's Blumpkin. And, uh... <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> That's kind of a letdown, I got this. <laughs> How is getting a blowjob while taking a shit a letdown to you, John? My God, yeah. you you snob. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, come on. Um, well, one word, you know. I, okay, you know what? I'm let's, done embarrassing myself in front of Paul. To Minuto as far as words that I was not anticipating <laughs> tonight. It's, it's a list. It's, see, if you're playing, if you're watching at home, play bingo. <laughs> you won't so, win. <laughs> Paul, I know you already answered this question, but I'm going to read it anyways. What's your process? This is from Brian McCauley. Oh. What's your process for nurturing a story idea from initial spark through a finished novel while still feeling excited or confident that this idea is worth the investment? And I ask it on here because it's uh, it's definitely worth repeating for anyone yeah. who would listen or watch this. <clears throat> Sure. Um, so, I mean, every, with the caveat that every story is sort of different, but I kind of fall into a, a pattern of like, when I get like an initial spark, I'm typically, you know, I'm super excited and it feels like, okay, this is the one uh, that I want to work on. Uh, usually that might involve like, even like a particular scene that, that I want to get to almost like a carrot at the end of the stick kind of scene. Um, or, you know, I may discover that later. Um, but typically what I'll do is when I have an idea for a novel and I've never really had the, oh, this is a short story. And then it blows up and becomes a novel for whatever reason. Maybe it's the, the strict math person in me. I don't know if I know it's a short story. I pretty, pretty much know from inception. Okay. This is a short story. And then this thing is going to be a novel. Um, so typically what I'll do, I'm looking around see if I have any notebooks around. I don't, I do. Um, I keep like a bunch of, I don't know, like the pretentious author moleskin sort of notebooks around, but I've got like 10 of them. And partly it's because I lose them sometimes. Um, but that's kind of fun because I'll find like, oh, what did I write in here? Because I usually forget. But once I have a novel idea, I, I typically, uh, you know, that becomes the one notebook for my novel. So oddly enough, I can't find the notebook for Paul Bear's Club. But like, here's a little notebook for Head Full of Ghosts. Yeah, funny that Brendan brought it up. Like that was the first page. It was like idea. I don't know. Like at first, like I even wrote down like two brothers, and I quickly like crossed that out. Um, you know, and then I spend usually, you know, just a bunch of pages just trying to scratch out ideas of where I think the story might go and like, you know, a page for characters. Yeah, you know, I'll spend probably a couple of weeks or more doing that. Um, and then usually, not all the time, but usually then I'll write some form of a plot summary. You know, and that could take like a few weeks to a month um, with the head full of ghosts being, I guess, one of the only novels of the recent run that I didn't really write a outline for. Although the novel I just started now, I'm not writing an outline for either. Um, as to why I do or don't, there's no real rhyme or reason. Sometimes I've been forced by my publisher like they want, you know, to get me back on book deal. Like for Paul Bear's Club, I was off deal. I had to pitch them the idea for the book and they needed 
like 30 to 50 pages and a summary. So I, I was, you know, sort of forced, professionally forced to write a summary, you know, which is fine because I always feel like weakest at plot and more comfortable with, with, I don't know, mood and, and character and voice and stuff like that. Um, so once I have the outline, then I'll, I'll start in and, you know, I go pretty slow, but it adds up like, you know, 400 to 500 words a day. I mean, 500 words is a great day for me. Um, but then, you know, if I just stick at, you know, keep at it for like a year, that's usually been sort of the magic number for me is most books. I, I write a complete draft in about 12 months, you know, sometimes longer, but usually 12 months. Do you, but, write, uh, do you write and then edit the next day and then write? Is that your... Yeah, I definitely, I, yeah, I edit what I did the day before. And if it's a novel, I usually go all the way back to the start of a chapter. Those are like little break points for me. So um, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, it feels, some, it feels like some days I'm not actually going further. Because what I end up doing a lot is like, I'll write some new words, but those are really sort of bare bones. And then I'll go back and fill in. And usually every time I go back, I don't really cut, <laughs> I add. And it just starts like growing out this way. Um, it's so like I said, sometimes it feels like I'm never going to get anywhere if I just keep adding to, you know, to the section. You know, at some point I decide, you know, I feel good enough to, to move on. Um, but yeah, that just sort of accrues. There's a math word, accrue. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of a mid math word, I guess. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, slapped. and then it slapped. It slapped. And then by the end, I've, I've got a thing. That was um, one of the things that you, when you answered that question online, you said, uh, and you reiterated it here, trust that small piles of daily words and edits add up to a thing in about a year. Um, and I, I wanted to kind of harp on that idea of patience. One theme that seems to come up, and we've had a lot of different discussions around, is the idea of, and I'm blanking on the word, Patrick, if you can jump in, but basically um, instant gratification, I suppose, mm. is the best way of putting it. Uh, writing, 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 and just getting getting it out there. And you seem perfectly content to make sure that when it goes out, it goes out right. And I'm wondering if that's something that you, is that a way you've always been with your writing or is that something you learned to do? Uh, it's just the way I've, like, I found that's the way that works for me. And I can't tell you like how or when I found it, but um, I, I've pretty much always sort of worked that way. Like I, I wish I was someone who could just like spill it out, um, you know, and then go back and revise and revise because I actually, the, to me, when I have like a full draft and, and go through and edits and stuff like I'm, that part's fun because I feel like I'm really close that I have something. Um, so I wish I could, I could just sort of like spill it out, but it just doesn't work for me. And I, you know, I stopped a long time ago trying to, you know, try to try to do it differently. Now that said, like, I will try to make each book feel a little bit different. Like it's a balance. Like, you know, I want to be able to lean on the experiences of the past to have confidence to be like, oh yeah, you can do it. Like, cause there are plenty of moments where you think, oh, this isn't working or I can't do it. And for me, like the danger, the danger zone is the first 100 pages. If I've ever, the times I've quit on novels is usually within that 100 page mark. But once I get past 100 pages, that's usually okay. <laughs> I'm going to write this if it kills me, kind of feeling. <laughs> um, but anywhere between zero and 100 is like, oh, is this really the thing, or is there a new shiny thing I should be looking at? You know, which I think all writers sort of struggle with. Um, and honestly, it helps to have like a publishing schedule. You know, I'm super lucky and privileged to have, you know, deals with William Morrow. It, ha it helps to have a deadline. Like, you know, I can't afford to sit around and and wallow in 
as as much of writerly self pity. I mean, I every, I always wallow in it, but like at a certain point, I have to be like, okay, damn it, you have to you have to put some words on the page. You know, you've got you've got a deadline looming. Speaking of five hundred word, sorry to cut you off. Uh, just sure, a real man. quick side note. Uh, speaking of the five hundred word count, I know that Mallerman used that for his massive behemoth sized book of really the Cape. I'm not making that up, Brian. Am I? I definitely heard him. Say no, that. and it almost mm-hmm. drove him off the deep end. If you if you listen to him, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean that's it, he is he's somebody who you know has to exercise extreme self restraint to write less than four thousand words a day or something like that. Um, but no, you're you're remembering that right. Okay. Um, I'm curious with the way that you kind of let's say plan it out in a notebook. Let's say it's one of those um, and chipping away at it with that four or 500 words a day, uh, do you find it's easier to, or I guess it happens less that you get into something and be like, I just don't love this idea. I'm just not going with it. Or is that more down to like publishing schedule? Like, well, I owe it. So now I have to write this. Um, yeah. I mean, I can't over overstate sort of the pressure of the idea of like, I have to, you know, write this idea kind of thing. Um, I'm trying to think of a few. So like a head full of ghosts was written because I was a hundred pages into another novel that initially I was super excited about, but then I got bogged down, didn't know what to do. And, and even like, if I just stepped back and tried to be objective, I could see that I was doing other things as opposed to writing like, Oh, I'm going to read this thing because it's research, even though it had nothing to do with the book. Um, so luckily I had the idea for a head full of ghosts and that was kind of hard because my agent was expecting this other book that I was writing. Um, but I was just so excited about the idea for a head full of ghosts. I mean, it felt scary. I was like, you know what, I'm going to put, the, I'm going to quit this other thing and start writing a head full of ghosts. And then like, just give it as a surprise to my agent later. <laughs> um, surprise. Um, and with survivor song, uh, I hadn't actually started another book, but I'd started taking notes and I'd been thinking about this other book for a long time. And at first I was super excited. Um, and then maybe I'll go back to it someday, but I think the more I thought about it, I was like, Oh man, that, that I don't know if I'm ready for that book yet. And also I think it would be a really long book. And I sort of let time purposely <laughs> start getting tight. I'm like, okay, well, I can't do that book now. Cause I know I would need more than a year. So I need a new idea and sort of came up with, uh, with survivor song. Um, so yeah, that's how it usually happens. I, I mean, knock on wood, I've never really been into something like super deep into it. And like, you know what? I hate this. Oh, God, <laughs> knocking all the wood in the world. I hope that doesn't happen with the thing I'm working on now. Oh God. You know what? I just want to touch on agents. Cause you're the one that made me a while ago is probably when you were on Brian King's show. So it was an older episode. Um, it was actually when head full of ghosts came out. I believe. Uh, well, anyways, you talked about mm-hmm. agents saying that you are better without one than to have a bad one. And I, I know you've talked about this all yeah. the time for my listeners. that haven't heard that. I think it's amazing advice because it definitely, when I was newer, helped me kind of um, pull the idea of any agents good enough. Uh, so right. if, if you have any comments on that. Sure. So um it's so I've been really fortunate to have had the same agent since 2006. Although sort of weirdly, I felt like the closest we ever came to not working together was with a head full of ghosts because I showed him a partial, you know, in his defense, you know, I showed him the first hundred pages was like, Hey, surprise, 
you know, and he didn't know what the rest of it was going to be. So like, he gave me some feedback that really threw me for a loop. And I just decided eh, I'm going to plow forward. And, you know, if he doesn't want to wrap it at the end, then I guess I'll have to find somebody new, but he loved it when it was a full manuscript. So anyway, uh, you know, I think, you know, most of the writers, you know, like, and I don't think I'm talking out of school, but like, you know, huge writers like Stephen Graham Jones has been through multiple agents. Uh, my friend Stuart O'Neill, who I mentioned <laughs> semi-famously for him, like his first seven books were with seven different agents <laughs> because each one wanted the same book and Stuart always wants to do a different idea. So in terms of like, you're better off with no agent than a bad agent. So like, what's a bad agent? Um, so a bad agent is one that doesn't communicate with you, like won't answer your emails. You know, it's not that like if you send an email that they have to answer it within an hour, you know, certainly within a day or two. Um, to me, other huge warning signs are is if they submit your work uh, and then it's like three, four months later and they still haven't heard back from editors yet, that's a really bad sign because that means your agent doesn't have doesn't have any pull, doesn't have any relationships with these editors, uh, which is really important or, you know, isn't following up because he doesn't feel, you know, this agent doesn't feel as strongly about you on your behalf. Like those are all things, you know, agents do. Um, yeah. To me, like those are the biggest warning signs. Like uh, other ones can be a little bit more obvious. I mean, I'm not going to mention like an anthology, but like at one point there was a little bit of a dust up online over, an anthology where like the anthologist was trying to sell the whole anthology, the whole thing as a package, the movie rights. And they were telling the writers like, Hey, this is a really good deal. You know, you have to give up. I forget what percentage it was. Any percentage is too high. You have to give up a certain percentage of your film rights for your story, mm. you know, to this person. Like, no, you never give up film rights. I mean, those are, there are some basic things like, you know, 10 minutes of Googling, like you do not give up any percentage of your film rights. No good agent would ever, sign a contract that would do that. So yeah, that's dumb. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that the harmful thing, like when I say you're better off with no agent than a bad agent, let's say you had a bad agent and he say, and this agent, they sent your book to all these editors. Now, like you figure out, okay, this agent really doesn't have much pull. Like if you go get a new agent, you really can't have your new agent send to those same editors because, you know, they've already, you know, been sent the book or been pitched the book. And, you know, I think most of them, yeah, maybe they never read the book in the first place, but like, I think that agent would be like, you know, I don't want to submit to where it's already been submitted. And I actually, I went, I learned the hard way. I went through that with my, the first novel that I wrote that I thought was any good. Uh, and it was sort of a goofy comedy set in Boston. <laughs> um, you know, I had an agent who's like, let me try sending it to an editor. And, and I was like, are you signing me? He's like, you know, so let me send it to this one editor. And like, it felt, and I sort of ruined a potential relationship with somebody else. And, after he sent it to one editor and they passed, he was like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to work with you. And it was really shady, but again, like so young, I was just so excited at the idea of, Oh, here's an agent from an actual agency. That's going to, you know, maybe represent my book. Um, I don't know. It's hard. I think the hardest thing now it's harder now than it was even in 2000, mid two thousands to be patient just because of all you see everybody like announcing their you know great news on, on Twitter and Facebook, et cetera. And it's great. You know, I'm always happy for friends when they have successes, but it's hard not to have that sort of pile onto you sometimes and be like, man, why, why is this happening sooner? Or why isn't this deal happening? Um, so I, I do think it's hard to be patient. I'm glad I sort of came up when I did, you know, cause I took two years to find an agent. Like I just sucked up hundreds of <laughs> agent rejects, you know, and I was never, never was tempted to try just put it out there myself. Um, cause I knew like, I, I can't like, 
I can't market and edit my own book. That's just not something I have time or the bandwidth to do. Um, I wrote this damn book. Someone's going to pay me for it <laughs> or it's, or, or it's going to sit in a trunk, which it's doing now, which is fine. That novel did its job. I learned how to write a novel somewhat and it got me my agent. So that's right. That was a really long rambly answer. No, 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 that's perfect. I actually heard something similar, not about agents, but with, um, with film adaptation or TV adaptation from George R. R. Martin in an interview, he was talking about how a lot, he didn't give up game of Thrones until it was to, he knew the right person, but he learned that a lot, you know, a lot of new writers, if they have a option, they're going to jump on it, mm-hmm. but they don't put any thought or maybe the excitement overpowers, like who's really trying to represent my, my work because that's that's a part of your heart and soul and yeah. i think the excitement overshadows that in the beginning for a lot of people uh, um yeah i would say for george rr can i call him george rr <laughs> you know it's a little bit easy to say because for him easier i should say because you know he was a national best-selling author who could afford to be like you know what i'm not going to do an option with this person yeah you know i'm sure he had sort of the pick of the litter whereas you know most of us myself included do not um yeah so i mean hollywood is its own other sort of strange thing you know i have many an author who who have done quite well just say hey take the option money and run you're better off if it never gets made (laughs) um so i mean it's just there's you know any number of weird avenues you could go down with with hollywood paul why don't you tell us about the synopsis for paul bearers club and then john jump in sir with whatever whatever random noise or sound or question you want (laughs) Oh boy, I'm so bad at like the synopsis. I'm going to make the book sound so boring. But um, so the book, uh, I'll say this is presented as a found memoir by someone who names himself Art Barbara. Like the first line of the book is, I am not Art Barbara. Or, or as we say, you know, come on, Patrick or Brennan, give us a good Art Barbara in a Boston accent. Who wants to do it? Oh God, I can't do impressions. Don't even say it. Barbara. I am not Barbara. I am not Art Barbara. That's very Kennedy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I am a or Catholic Irishman from Mass. Yeah. So <laughs> um so anyway, it's a it's a fine memoir and it, it starts when he's you know he's writing about when uh he's a high school student uh in the late 80s, about to graduate. Or he's a, it's a senior year, he's not a very popular, doesn't have a lot of friends. Um, you know, he sort of suffers with some back ailments, including scoliosis, a curvature of the spine, and other things. Um and in his in his sort of discovery of panic, he's like, oh man, I need a I need an extracurricular activity to <laughs> to put on my college application. You know, applying to school in the late '80s was much different than now. Um, those were especially you know speaking from experience, they're almost like kind of afterthoughts, like what you put on your your uh, application. Anyway, so he starts the pallbearers club, um, where he volunteers at a local funeral home to serve elderly and uh, homeless who don't have a lot of living or any living relatives. Yeah, which is a very sweet, you know, thing to do. Uh, but also, <laughs> you know, as a horror, I was like, well, you know, dead people, it can be creepy, right? <laughs> so uh, not very many classmates join arts club and none of them stick with the club. But a, a, a strange woman that he names in the book, Mercy, joins the club and she's older. He's not sure how much, maybe she's in college, uh, but she's a big punk music fan. And she likes to take Polaroid pictures of, of corpses, as one does, uh, but also people, too. And then really sort of the book, and she may or may not be uh, a supernatural 
being from a, a corner of, of New England folklore. See, I told you I'm doing a terrible job pitching my book here. Um, but the whole book is this memoir that Art writes, and it you know expands over three decades. Uh, and hopefully, I think one of the fun parts of the book is Art and Mercy's relationship. To me, that's sort of really the, the emotional core of the book. And after the end of every, when I say it's a found memoir, Mercy found this memoir. Like you, you find out eventually, you know, how maybe she found it. But um, after every chapter Art writes, she has like sort of a rebuttal, like a handwritten rebuttal. And then she also can't help herself and starts writing notes in the margins. Um, and, you know, I'm so pleased and lucky that my publisher actually published it physically that way. You know, it looks so cool. If I do say so myself with the underlines and like the handwritten notes and, um, and the hardcovers, the first edition hardcovers, it's actually two color ink, red and black. So I'm just sort of geeking out over the physical, the physical part of this book. Was that a hard sell? It was. I tried to warn. <laughs> I tried to warn my poor editor Jen. She's the best in the world. But like, even when I pitched the book, I'm like, hey, you know, I think you know, there's going to be these comments in the margins. They really need to be there. And my agent was on board. She's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and initially, when I first turned in the manuscript, she tried to maybe talk out of it. But you know, she hadn't read the full manuscript yet. It's like they they really have to be there. I'm sorry. Um, you know, and to her credit, you know, she not only accepted it, but really stepped up. Like I never asked for the two ink thing and they you know, decided to do that on their own, um, you know, and really knocked it out of the park. But she reminds me whenever we speak about how much of a pain the ass it was <laughs> and said, make sure the next book, you know, I said, oh no, the next book's going to have pop-up pages and holograms. <laughs> uh, um, she, doesn't, she doesn't think that joke is funny. <laughs> no, she doesn't know it's not a joke. Um, right. So, you know, you mentioned that the relationship between art and uh, mercy is kind of the emotional core. And I, I really reading it, I, I kind of latched onto the idea pretty quickly that without the margin notes and without the end of chapter notes, that emotional core doesn't I don't want to say it doesn't work, but mm. I really think that the, the notes is what sells it. Um, I, I think that it's kind of that experimental, if you will. Sorry if you don't like that term, but like yeah. it. In this case, it was a necessary ingredient. Um, so I could imagine, you know, wanting slash needing to fight for that. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think if it was just art, I mean, listen, <laughs> you know, he's definitely sort of like a depressive, manic, and at times self-pitying and annoying. <laughs> Purposefully so. Um, you know, Mercy's definitely there to sort of to balance some of that and sort of to call art some of his own bullshit or to call me on some of my own bullshit because <laughs> art I would say is very close to, to myself Thin, thinly veiled. <laughs> I had a very Dennis Lee hand uh, shutter Island feeling towards the mid to definitely the end. By mid, you mean middle, right? Oh yeah. I really wasn't even <laughs> making a joke then. Just check it. Now I know I do. Yeah. I just want to, you know, for the, for the younger audience out there, you didn't really mean mid no, you meant middle. It. No, yeah. When I when I tweeted that as an instant classic, I wasn't. I, I try not okay. to speak in hyperbole. Yeah, man. It's um, the best ones always. You know, I'm not telling you guys anything new, but they always do something. Uh, they have their own awesome twist on a familiar story, and that's what you got here. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and if this spoils anything, let me know, and I'll cut this part out. But. I took it, I know it's different for every reader, but I kind of took it as a as a play, not a play on word, uh, kind of a, a commentary 
sort of narration thing with uh, mental health. Um, man, it's really hard not to spoil it. Why I yeah. think that. Yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. Mr. Sure. Langan, can you jump in and yeah. save me? <laughs> no, I mean, no, no, I know you're... what you're saying. Sorry, John, you want no, to no, add? Go, no, 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 go right ahead. Go right no, ahead. I mean, I think that's definitely there. Like, you know, I don't want to like, you know, my fear is like every time I try to describe it, it's like I'm thinking about what this book means to me. Mm. You know, to me, the magic about a relationship any writer has with readers is, you know, your book's going to mean something to you. I mean, many things to you. And you want to communicate some, if not all of that to the reader, but the reader's going to get their own stuff out of it. So, you know, I don't want to like get too inside of myself, but, you know, I would say when I wrote this book, when I had the idea, I was excited because I wanted to write something that was different than Cabin and Survivor Song. So I felt like those two books took a chunk out of me in a, in a, in a way, you know, and I don't mean that in a, like, Oh, you know, it's such hard work, poor, poor writers, but um, you know, those two books. So, so engaged with like the awful now, <laughs> you know, I felt like I needed a break. And this was November of 2019 when I got the idea for Paul Bear's club. I was like, you know, and I was also a little bit worried that my, my editor and, and publisher was really wanted me to go down like a thriller route you know, nothing against thrillers. You know, there are great thriller writers and great thrillers out there. That's just not my thing. Like partly because <laughs> plot's not my strength. Like I'm not interested in the thriller plot per se. I'm interested in the characters. Mm. Um, so I was like on the, the search for something that would take, take place over a span of time and maybe go a little inward as opposed to outward. Um, and so the Paul Bears Club luckily sort of, you know, fit that bill. And um, to, to go back to the, you know, I guess, your original statements, I mean, I do think on one level, this is certainly, for me, it's a little bit about my relationship with, with writing um, and that how it's tied in with anxiety and depression at times and how it's not all, you know, so most of the time it's a, <laughs> a healthy relationship, but sometimes it isn't. I don't know. Um, I hope I'm the first one to say this, and especially because truly not because it's not i'm not kissing your ass when i say this but of all the writers i've read you have the most ingrained uh stephen king in you and <laughs> um i feel like this is your misery oh thank you i'm honored um you mean my 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 second dad stephen <laughs> can i call him that no yeah i mean I think I think he's I think he'd be okay with that at this point. Yeah. He seems to really oh, no. like you. <laughs> um, it would be impossible for even subconsciously for for there not to be you know Stephen King coming out just because um, you know I didn't become a reader for pleasure until my early twenties. But what I did consume was all the Stephen King eighties adaptations. Like I watched all those movies over and over again. And then when I first fell in love with reading, it was all the Stephen King books. And then you know it wasn't until Dance Macabre that I found, well, I, I found Peter Straub because I'd read Talisman, right? Um, but from Dance Macabre, I found like Shirley Jackson and, you know, Clive Barker and, you know, and so yeah, many other writers. Funny. Yeah. So, I mean, King was, you know, the first like twice for me, really, <laughs> mm. uh, you know, loving his movies or his adaptations and then, you know, seeing things done better, you know, in his books, which, you know, I had no idea of at the time. <laughs> Mr. Langan, sorry, so rude of us. Uh, you go ahead, sir, please. I think it would just be funny if every time I go to say something, another person breaks in and it's just like, and here's one I more thing, on Paul. I don't feel bad because you're not nice to me when you come on here. Uh, Shut up, Brennan. <laughs> but, uh, 
<laughs> I just want that to be the tagline for this episode. No, that's actually the trailer. No, it's man. There's, there's like so much to uh, um, in, in all seriousness to respond to uh, and to, to agree with and what Paul is saying. I, I was like, like going back all the way a couple of minutes to the patients, uh, the patients thing. And I, I like on the one hand, like, I, I guess I was thinking, so I'm about 50 pages in to the Paul Bearers Club, and I have the same reaction you guys are having. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you know, this is what, like, this is your eighth published novel. I was trying to do the, I was trying to do the math, but as you know, yeah. math is not my strong <laughs> suit. Um, so, you know, eighth published, um, uh, ninth complete uh, novel, and you have a few other, um, you know, partial novels, I guess, mm-hmm. or whatever, right? And and so, on the one hand, it's like you know, it's like you're an overnight success, uh, an overnight success in, <laughs> right. in, in in eight novels, you know, like like <laughs> I mean, even with even with Head Full of Ghosts, which which was the the one that uh, I think really broke you big, um, you know, that was still that was not the first novel you wrote. That that right. it, it took a while to get there, and and I think like. Um, I don't think of myself, I don't think of either of us as old writers, but you're like, um, but we're not new writers anyway, right. you know? And, and I, I do think that like, you know, what's the, what's the big secret? Yeah. Is, is patience, you know, like, like it, it, uh, and I think that has to do with the, with the agent thing is as well. Um, you got to do a little bit of homework with agents. You know, there were agents who are good agents, who are solid agents who get good deals for their clients and so on. And then there were agents who were like, they kind of want to be writers themselves. And they're kind of using this as like, a, I, I don't know what, like, like as if by repping you, they'll get themselves in good with the editors and they can kind of leave you behind. And beca- I mean, it's, it's kind of, I, it's weird, uh, I guess. And you've also got agents who are, trying to take advantage of you and, and of all the different sort of, you know, th- there's all the, the big thing now, right. Is platforming, you know, that, that we're going to, you're going to have a novel and it's going to be a video game and it's going to be a Netflix series and there'll be a feature film and there'll be action figures and so on. Um, which I, I mean, is not uh, like, like um, for you financially as a writer is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think maybe, um, like, like for when people talk about platforming, they're talking about IP, right? And they're thinking about, you know, Marvel movies. <laughs> you know, they're like, yeah. and and we all want the Marvel money, right? That's the the problem. But I, I just feel like as a as a writer, you got to be thinking about what is it I'm writing? You know, what what is the what is the thing I'm writing, and is it the best piece of writing that I can do? Because all that other stuff, the action figures, um, they may happen, they may not happen. Um, and there's, there's no way, I mean, publication may not happen to, you know, in the first place, like that's what you gotta, you gotta control what you can control. And, and so much of that, like, like you have the patience to, to write a novel and, and not take, and to write novel after novel after novel and not get distracted by, you know, here's another anthology. And would you write a story for this? And here's another thing. Would you do something for that? And I'm not saying there's an, you know, obviously I, yeah. I do a lot of anthology stuff. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I am saying like, you know, it's, it's patience and like being able to be patient with the choices you made. So you make a choice. I'm going to write novels. Well, you write those novels and, you know, and and that's hard. Like now you're, you're, you know, at the point where you can be like, I have these novels and I I have this, we as your readers can be like, wow, look at what this guy has done. 
but you have to have the patience to, to commit to that along the way. There's probably some kind of sports or even a musical metaphor, you know, if you're trying to, to play the guitar, right? I, I mean, you have the image in your head. And I say this because I've been trying to learn to play the guitar the past year. So like you have the image of yourself in the head is like Eddie Van Halen or whatever, you know, and what you're actually doing is like, ow, C chords are hard. And, uh, but you know, if, if you can, if you can hold on, uh, you'll get the C chord eventually, and, you know? Um, so, yeah, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, the, there's a lot to think about there that just the importance of patience, which I feel like in our, I don't know, like in a sort of the digital world we live in is just really, really hard because mm-hmm. I feel like everything is about producing that the dopamine hit of the, of the like on Twitter or, or Facebook or whatever, and, and learning to do without that, um, that's probably something that's if, if you want to be a writer is, is something that's really, really important. I think. What about reviews too? I meant to ask Paul earlier. Um, I actually don't know this answer, but um, as an author, what is your suggestion about how you handle reviews? Meaning like, do you look at them ever? Do you think it's healthy to look at them? Um, it's probably not all that healthy to look at them. Um, but you know, it's human nature. It's impossible to not look at them. Um, I, I feel like I went down like a terrible <laughs> spiraling road with a head full of ghosts where like before, you know, cause I was so excited that I was getting a second shot publishing and I was very excited about the book. Um, like, I, you know, I, I was reading everything on Goodreads, everything on Amazon. Like, this is insane. What, why am I doing this to myself? And when, when cabinet, the end of the world came out, because I read one Amazon review. I was like, you know what? I'm done. I'm not, <laughs> And I've held to that. I haven't read any other Amazon reviews of my books um, and Goodreads too. Although, you know, sometimes those slip through on like Twitter or, you know, so I come across those kind of reviews. Like, you know, I tend to always read uh, re- reviews from venues. Um, you know, so I don't know if that's any healthier or not healthier or what. Um, Do you remember when, when you did one of the little sleep, I can't remember little sleep <laughs> yeah. or no sleep. So you remember the review thing you did? Is that yeah. still is that still around anywhere? Yeah, now? that's still on YouTube. I, I did even like a funny, funnier now. Yeah, I did a video about how I deal with reviews, and you know, and it was sort of just a comedic. I was at my brother's house reacting to like a bad review by like smashing it with a, a hammer and a shovel in the snow, and like had a good review frames, uh, just being goofy. You know, two thousand nine trembling. <laughs> um, no, I mean, they still sting. They still, like, that hasn't gotten better for me. Uh, you know, people always say, oh, writers, you know, you should have a thick skin. Like, I don't know. You do. Like, I feel like I have a thick skin dealing with, like, the professional side of things and getting, like, my editor's comments and stuff like that. But the other part of it, and part of this is my own brain's fault that, like, <laughs> part of why I wrote the Paul Bears Club is I feel like I made the discovery of, like, you know, people ask you enough times, why do you write? And I'm like, well, I think I write because, you know, I was so miserable in high school, like so many people were. Um, I felt like that that's still there inside of me. And, and writing is me trying to prove to that teenager stuck inside of me that I have something worth saying. Um, and so when I, I kind of figured like, geez, I think that's why I write. Um, I don't know if that's the right answer or not. Like, who the, who the hell knows why they write? <laughs> um, I, I think in a better in a better sort of frame of mind. I like to write because I get really excited when I read awesome stuff and that makes me want to try something like it. Um, so I guess in a more happier, more adult way, like 
figuring out that it's okay to like things, you know, as much, even though as much of the world, it's uncool to like things. It's okay to be passionate about things like John, you know, I mess around with the guitar because I love music so much. Um, so I, I definitely You're, also started writing because I was reading these things that really got me excited. And then I started getting like, Hey, maybe you could try, maybe you could try. Why not? Like what's the worst that could happen? Uh, Twitter. That's the worst that could happen. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking yeah. you're much, you're much better at the guitar than I am. So, you know, well, I started when I was, you know, started my early, I started my senior year in college. So I've had quite a head start on you, John. Wow. Um, wow. Was that an yeah. ageist joke? Thanks. Thanks <laughs> a lot. That's that's, I can't even, wow. Paul okay. Tremblay canceled. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. I didn't even say like, when you said you imagine yourself as Eddie Van Halen playing guitar, I was like, no, I imagine John as, some guitarist with his shirt off playing his guitar. And I was trying to think of what guitarist famously plays without a shirt. I was Angus, say, uh, lot, right? Angus, Angus Young. Yeah. Movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For right. He's from, you know? he's from the seventies. Yeah. But that means I'm putting you in like schoolboy shorts too. And like, <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> That's hot. All right. Next topic. <laughs> this, this conversation is taking strange, strange turns. Yes. We have one more. We have, we have one more, and it, you didn't answer it on Twitter. So if, if, if it's yeah. a pass, just pass. How does uh, this is from Chris DeLeo? I yeah. don't. Okay. How does the how does he determine the structure of his stories and the techniques he uses? There's another question, but I'll just leave it there. Yeah. No, I I, I saw that you said, oh, I'll ask him this. So that's why I didn't answer on Twitter. I figured I'd answer it now. I, I um, didn't know if I came off like a dick. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Uh, a little bit. A little bit. That's what she said. <laughs> Mid dick, mid. Oh no! Uh, <laughs> nice. That um, uh, is that one of Stephen King's worlds in the Dark Tower. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. Uh, you know, I'm a sucker for like fun narrative sort of techniques or uh, or twists or, or ways to present story. Um, but sort of like the ringing thing, I try to keep in my head is like, okay, if you're going to do that, then you're going to make sure it's there for a reason. It just can't be a gimmick. Um, you know, happily with the Paul Bears Club, as soon as like, oh, you know, uh, a student at my, like really briefly, this is, you know, a student at my school in November of 2019 got up in front of everybody and said, hey, I'm starting this club, the Paul Bears Club. You know, I was half asleep because it was Monday morning. But as soon as he said the Paul Bears Club, I was like, what? <laughs> you know, instantly woke up. I was like, oh my God, it's amazing. I have to use that somehow. Right. And because it was a, a senior announcing, I thought of myself in high school. I was like, geez, what if, you know, what I never would have done something like that. And I was like, okay you know, let's, let's have a character that was very much like me doing something like this. You know, what would that look like and how would it, you know, how, how would that, you know, how would that happen? So I sort of, you know, then soon after I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to write this thing. This is a weird memoir and use a lot of autobiographical stuff. It's like, well, someone needs to find this memoir who finds it <laughs> and like, what's she going to do with it? So I instantly said, Oh, this would be really, she's going to have rebuttals, but I, I actually want to write in the margin. So I was excited about all of that, like especially the writing in the margins, because oh, now I have a reason to do something cool and shiny <laughs> in a book. Um, an example of one that took me a lot longer to figure out would be my short story "Notes from the Dog Walkers," I love which that appear, story. which appears in thank you in Growing Things mm -hmm. for years. Like you know, because when we first got my dog Holly, my kids were older and she was going to be home alone for you know multiple days. We're like, okay, we're going to hire a dog walker, which is a weird thing. And the dog walker started leaving notes. I'm like, these notes are amazing. And I tried writing fake notes to, to fool my family. But <laughs> they saw through me right away. <laughs> um, but I was like, oh, I want to write, I want to write a, a story using these notes from dog walkers. But like, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. And I even tried like, 
I did a book with Brian Evanson that came out through a publisher. It was called Another Way to Fall, and it took two novellas. But before we did that, I was like, hey, Brian, maybe we should try writing this novella through Dog Walker Notes. He was like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe not. So he politely said no. Um, so I don't know. It's just that I wanted to, to do Dog Walker's story through notes, but I had to figure out how. And it took me, you know, it took me a couple of years before I found a way in. Um, so, yeah. I, so sometimes, Chris, I do start with a narrative form that I want to mess around with, but I try to make it, you know, not just the form, but it has to fit the story. Yeah. You, you do have a really neat way of uh, writing epistolary style stories. <laughs> Thanks. And I thought it was funny because you uh, do mention uh, Dracula and I'm pretty sure we've mentioned it's a vampire book and uh, like Dracula, it's epistolary. Yeah. Um, right. Growing Things was actually the very first book when I started reviewing books. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. I got a signed copy when the the owner of that store in your town, I think it was. Oh, in, cool. Yeah. yeah. Mad Mama Vintage. Yeah. I let a friend borrow that and she had it for like two years. I'm like, I want to need that book back like now yeah and she didn't have dust jackets on any of the books and i was like in my head <laughs> in my head i'm like please tell me that these are somewhere else it's in good yeah. condition but yeah I, I almost had a freak attack with that oh, that's but, a bad, um, book for, bad book friend <laughs> no, no book for you um yeah. he just follows it up with a comment uh so this is chris again he always makes such cool during choices the second person plural present tense and cabin the blank pages in song, <clears throat> the blog entries in ghosts, and the margin Nelia in club. Um, I actually did have a question to follow that up with. Mm -hmm. We've kind of touched on it, but how difficult is it for like stylistic choices? Is it is it something where like I'm beta reading this one book right now, right? And it's it's got stylistic choices in the beginning of sections of the book where mm -hmm. The chapter, I know audio listeners can't see this, but it's like yeah. the word is kind of like that and then slanted and it, it kind of zigzags. Is that something where you should, I don't know how else to word this. Is that something where you should make damn sure that the printer is is capable, whoever that company is, is capable of doing that? Because it doesn't seem like yeah. just anyone could do that. Yeah, I mean, one would hope that like, you know, now, given the technology at our sort of disposal that, you know, what we can and can't print should be pretty much up to the imagination. Like, like I sort of joked earlier, you know, short of holograms and, and fold out pages. I mean, I mean, if, if there's a will, if there, if people are willing to put in the work and the investment, there's a way, I mean, Mark Danielewski's house of leaves, I mean, sort of did everything right, right, that you could right. possibly imagine on a book yeah. and, you know, someone printed it. Um, yeah, I would say it's something like you need to try and like fail. Like I've, you know, and short stories for me are times where I've definitely, you know, messed around with that kind of thing. Uh, and maybe it wasn't as successful some other times. You know, hopefully it's more successful in the books. Um, and, and I've tried it and figured out that, hey, it didn't work. Nothing super major, but like with Cabin at the End of the World, I initially, really the only thing that changed from draft to, to being published, uh, there's a section in the book that that goes into Leonard's point of view, uh, third person. And when I initially wrote it, I wrote it as second person. Uh, so I wanted it to be a little bit jarring. Um, I wanted it to almost be a warm up for the very last chapter, which was going to be second person plural, which I knew was going to be jarring. Um, 
But after writing, I was like, no, this doesn't work. Like, I don't want, because it's second person, I don't want people thinking I sympathize with Leonard. Um, so, you know, I, I changed it. Um, so, I mean, so part of it is like you, in the moment you try it, and then if you figure out it doesn't work, you got to take it out. Brennan, uh, you want to jump to the what are you reading section now? Yeah, one thing I was going to throw out is I love how on the movie poster they kind of uh, borrowed from the UK version of yeah. uh, the, the the UK. I, I love this cover so much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's really cool. Um, <clears throat> all right. So this is kind of the uh, outro section where we just ask a few final questions. About uh, John Langan. Obviously. Quite, quite possibly. <laughs> now. So that's why I'm here. Where are his tickle spots? What? That's weird. <laughs> also, he I swore, don't know. Paul swore he would never tell. Yes. <laughs> no, okay. Uh, for real, so this time. Okay. <laughs> Paul, what are you currently reading? Uh, John, you can do a good Her- uh, Werner Herzog voice, right? I'm actually reading uh, uh, Werner Herzog's short novel. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah! About yeah. The, the the Japanese guy on the island, right? What? Why am I so bad with titles? And it's not in this room. It's like because the Twilight titles, space. Titles are meaningless, Paul. It yes. has nothing to do with anything. None of this matters, Paul. We've all yes. been dead when dust in years, a few <laughs> years. That's all. Yes, and that's the voice I hear while I'm reading this book. But right before that, uh, I finished two books that you know aren't going to be published for a bit. Um, I finished. And this was uh, John uh, John Fram who wrote uh, uh, the Nightlands. Mm-hmm. No, so I think that's the name of the book. I'm sorry, John. Uh, a really wonderful book that came out last summer that that mixed horror with like Texas Friday Night Lights, mixed with LGBTQ plus oh, fiction. Uh, yeah. The bright the Brightlands. There it is, the Brightlands, uh, which is really good. So he uh, he and I got in touch last summer and. Um, he had asked me to read his a draft of his new novel just for some feedback, which I was happy to do. Um, and it was really good. Um, before that, uh, I read Mariana Enriquez's uh, forthcoming novel, Our Shade of Night. It'll be published in February. Um, and not to get too hyperbolic, but like, I don't know, like you get to our age, even, I mean, John's age is beyond my age. So I don't want to say his age. You enough. son of a bitch. You <laughs> son of a bitch. Ages piece of shit. Would you get to our age? Uh, wow. I know, like, I, I don't know how you guys feel, but like, you know, I feel like my top five books list is like fixed, right? You, you assume, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to love books and movies, but like, right, right. you know, as an adult, you're like, oh, like how often do you think, oh, this is like one of the favorite, my favorite books I've ever read. And Mariana's novel is easily one of uh, my favorite novels now. Wow. It's on my, it's on my list forever. It's, it's amazing. Um, it's a, it's a big sprawling 700 page book. Uh, you know, there's a cult, there's this like old family, old moneyed family in Argentina. Uh, it's definitely doing like creepy cosmic horror culty stuff. Um, but really, you know, the heart of the book is, you know, following this different sense of characters over decades in the eighties, nineties, and even it dips back to the seventies too of Argentina. So like the dirty war of Argentina, the, you know, the brutal dictatorship that they live through. Um, and then there's just wonderful, like slice of life stuff. And then like, like amazing Starburst. There are these moments of just pure, unadulterated, disturbing horror terror that just took my breath away. Um, and it's just so wonderfully written. You know, it's funny, the publisher described it to me as it's Roberto Bolaño meets Stephen King. 
you know, which I think is true, but I, I would say it's more like Roberto Bolaño and I'm not just saying this to blow smoke up John's ass, but uh, it's like Bolaño meets a, like a Langan or Laird Baron cosmic horror story. That's pretty damn. Cool. All right. I'll, I'll forgive. Good. I'll forgive your ageist. <laughs> so, and I, and I know Mariana is a fan of John's work too. So uh, what you, what's her name again? I'm sorry. I kind of uh, Mariana Enriquez. She had uh she's had two. This is her first novel that's published in English. Um, she's had two short story collections come out in the last four or five years. And one of them is called things, uh, things we, we lost, lost in the, the fire, fire. Yeah, or yeah. what we lost in the fire. Yeah. Which is one of my favorite collections of the past decade. She's amazing. Um, so if you haven't read her, you know, read that collection and then be ready for the novel in February. That's damn cool. Mr. Langan, what are you currently currently reading? Well, I'm reading the Paul Bearers club. Um, <laughs> And uh, which which is really an astonishing achievement. It, re- it really it really really is. Um, and I feel bad that Paul is here because like the fact that he's here makes it seem as if well, what else am I going to say? You know what I mean? Like 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 I wish in a way he weren't here so I could say it and people would be like, there we go. Um, and <laughs> because it is, it's just. But I'm also I'm also reading uh, the Mariana Enriquez uh, novel, which yep, I have it right here. It's our share of night gigantic mm-hmm. um which is yeah also just an astonishing book and um you know it's it's uh it's kind of crazy you know there's all this good stuff that's being done right now um and some of it's coming out from big publishers um some of it's coming out from smaller publishers independent presses um i have uh i have my copies of uh screams from the dark uh uh, Ellen Datlow's monster book, which, which, you know, full disclosure, I have a story in, but which has stories by Glenn Hirschberg and Nathan Ballingrud and Laird, you know, just this crazy assortment of people. Um, and I've got a bunch of, I got a bunch of stuff that I'm looking forward to that hasn't come out yet. Dan Coxon's isolation anthology. Uh, but I think you have a story in that, don't you, Paul? Yeah, it's a reprint. So you've read that one before. I think. Oh, okay. Maybe. Well, so much, so much. I'm canceling that order then. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, Dan. <laughs> but uh, I'm looking forward to uh, Doug Marano's uh, Subterranean Horrors book. Um, and uh, both of these were anthologies that, like, I missed the chance to contribute to, you know, but what can you do? Um, and, uh, and yeah, I'm trying to catch up on movies too that I have. Like I still, I know I saw it part one, but I never watched it part two, which everybody tells me is disappointing. But like, I feel like maybe it's not, you know, maybe I, I'll I liked watch it. it I and liked I'll be it. like, yeah, I'll, I'll watch it and I'll be like, oh, that's not terrible or, or whatever, <laughs> you know, um, my, this is what like, this is what I feel I have in common with Stephen Graham Jones and what frustrates Laird and to a lesser extent, Paul to, to like no end, you know, is that like, I'll just watch anything and be like, well, you know, it had its moments. It wasn't bad, you know, and Laird is like having an embolism over here. Like, no. You know, that was, <laughs> it, uh, so yeah, I like to any chance I get to say, well, you know, of its kind, it was, it was okay. You know, and Laird is like, no, it was made with food. Um <laughs> Which, I mean, there was a movie made with food a few years ago, which is actually pretty good. It's about five minutes long. I can't remember the name of it. Sounds um, made, lovely. Made by a, um, a French-Canadian guy, I, I want to say. But anyway. Wait, so the, the thing was just, what was it about? It was just about food? Uh, it was some kind of story, but everything was made out of food. Like all the sets and the characters, so and really food mation instead of claymation. Exactly, and the thing is that it's it's this <laughs> vaguely sort of Lovecraftian kind of story, like cosmic horror kind of story. So it's really super gross. 
Hmm. But it's but it's really cool. Yeah, it, this super neat. Yeah, it, it's um, I just I can't remember. If, if you could, how hard could it be to find Lovecraftian food movie if you do a Google? Search? Sounds delicious. Brennan, what are you currently reading? I'm just not. I'm just not sure. I want to Google Lovecraftian food movie. Yeah, you might. Yeah, <laughs> some weird. Empty the cache. Up. Empty the cache after that search. Yeah, um, I am reading The Island by Adrian McKinty, and I'm very mixed on it because so I'm, I'm like 120 pages in. Um, and there's no island. No, <laughs> there's very much an island. They get to an yeah. island very quickly, but it's like it, it feels like I've hit a lot of these beats before. It's like there's you're reading it. Like, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. But at the same time, I can't put the damn thing down. Um, so obviously it's, you know, I, it, the, all the blurbs on the, on the cover promise me that it's unpredictable. I'm hoping I just haven't gotten to that part yet, but it's, mm. it's definitely written in a very engaging, uh, manner. Uh, the other one I just finished, uh, which I am not mixed at all about this. This is an awesome book is, uh, Ronald Malfi's Blackmouth. Uh, it's out July 19th. Uh, and it's, it's phenomenal. Um, he had, uh, Come With Me, I think, came out last year uh, and did really well. Everybody loved it. Uh, I think this one's better, um, or at least I liked it more. I'll phrase it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's got a lot of coming-of-age elements. Uh, I, I, For whatever reason, I always dig um, horror that brings in magicians and works that element in. Um, I, I think there's a lot of good stories, but not enough good stories that kind of do that. And this this one does a nice job with it, so I hope people will check that out. Patrick, yeah. So um, I am for physical copies. Uh, Lansdale's uh, Bubba and the Cosmic Bloodsuckers. It's a prequel to Bubba Hotep. Oh, and I'm actually prepping um, for the next episode. Edward Lee. He has a new one with uh, Kate Traps publishing company man i'm struggling to think about it what is it cookie evil cookie evil cookie that's it so it's called three little pigs it's just uh was it three novellas or are they full novels because 400 something no, pages. three three novellas uh one I, I can't tell you when they were written but two of them are older and one uh is a brand new contribution yeah um one was late the pig was 97 uh the other one was years ago well whatever that's what i'm reading and i'm enjoying them they're very different from paul's work and i just finished paul bearers club like super early this morning um yeah man so i I can't get enough of that ending like i thought that was phenomenal you got one ending which i'll just leave at this it it it's it tells you what the title means and i thought that was beautifully done i thought it was um equivalent to what Barker did with the books of blood and Jesus. Yeah. Well, I mean, no one's going to know what that means unless they read the book. So I don't think that spoils it. And then you have the second ending, which just, it, it, I don't know. You have a way of like, you're kind of like vodka where like, you don't think that you drink too much of it. And (laughs) you know, there's horror. It's not a bad thing, man. I mean, I'm Irish, you know? Okay. Uh So I'm not, not knocking alcohol. Uh, and then you stand up and you're like, holy fuck, I've been uh, surrounded by horror the whole time. And now I'm, now I'm almost dead and now I'm dead. Oh, but now I'm a vampire. <laughs> I love it. I love I've, always, that. I've always had a Paul more as like the Zima. Of, uh, oh, <laughs> Jesus. Oh, Zima. Shots that fired. Hurts. That hurts. Uh, it's uh, it's um, 
White Claw, would you or prefer e- White Claw? Epoch, it's epoch appropriate, though, for Paul Bearer's Club, I guess. Yeah. Zima 90s. Man. Zima, yeah. <laughs> have some za with it. That's a that's an 80s reference. Um, yeah. So, Paul, where can people follow you? Uh, hopefully not outside my house. I was going to um, say, outside your house. Yeah. <laughs> There's John. Um, <laughs> so I'm on Twitter, uh, at Paul G. Tremblay. Uh, I'm on Instagram, the same. Uh, same handle, Paul G. Tremblay. Facebook too. I'm, I'm unfortunately everywhere. It's obnoxious. <laughs> Facebook what's, too. Yeah. What's your middle name? Uh, Gaetan. We were talking about French Canadian food horror. Maybe really my relatives. Paul Gaetan Tremblay. Wow, that's uh, pretty. Uh, so Gaetan or Gaetan was my uh, my grandfather's uh, name. So I, I get that from him. Nice. Um, what, <laughs> I was trying to Thank think you. of a, a local <laughs> reference. To that pizza joint in Stoughton. Uh, I can't think of it now. The Town Spa. That's it. I fucking love that pizza, man. <laughs> I, was I gonna... like I like it. I I prefer like New York style, like big. So for people like Town Spa is like small, like pub pizza. It's very yeah. good pub pizza. Yeah. But I like a big, sloppy, greasy. You know, so actually my trick at Town Spa, Patrick, if you ever next time you're in this area, um, Cause it is like, a, you know, thin, super thin, like cracker pizza kind of thing. So I, I get it with extra, extra crust. So it almost makes it like a Uno style pizza. And mm, that's the stuff. And the extra crust is like 50 cents more. It's like, come on. Get Can like you just double. invite me to follow you there? <laughs> we'll go to Town Spa. Let me know when you're back <laughs> in uh, Bridgewater. We'll go to, we'll go to Town Spa. I will, take you, I will take you up on that and I'll do a terrible Boston accent. Um, <laughs> Town Spa. <laughs> Mr. Langan, where can people follow you? Uh, same thing. I'm all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, I don't do TikToks, but God, it's probably just a matter of time. Right. Um, you know, mid, I'm laughing. mid TikToks. Yeah. Not to interrupt John's story, because I'm going to say something nice about him again. But uh, <laughs> the publishing world is all like crazy about TikTok. That's like the new frontier. Book talk. You know, yeah, because yeah, it's yeah, true, yeah. like books are exploding, like backlists because of TikTok. And like, oh, you know, like I, I can't stomach that thought of like having to do another social media thing. And so we had like our meeting with, you know, Zoom meeting with publicist and marketing person. I said, oh, well, if you want, I'll join TikTok, but it'll be a, a puppet account, a literal puppet account. If I can get a puppet <laughs> that looks like me, then it would be that would be fantastic. I think hilarious. Yeah, they were like really horrified. Like, ah, yeah, we'll put it. We'll put a pin on that one. No, I, I went as far as going on Etsy and finding people that make like puppets that look like you for like three hundred <laughs> bucks. I'm like, man, that's really expensive. Oh, it would be, it would be like Punch and Judy, right? And it would be like the Paul Tremblay puppet show, and yeah. you would have a different writer on, like a hapless writer like me, and it would end with you like clubbing us to death. Like that would be fantastic. I like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd mean, be tempted to get like I would want like a Michael Cisco puppet. <laughs> no, the Michael Cisco puppet would just apparate. He would just like appear. It would just be a black sock. <laughs> John, I do have a serious question, man. Like, oh, but, but uh, sorry, I want no, to say, John. No. John has a new book coming out, like very shortly. Uh, oh, which I, I haven't read know. yet. So I'm, I'm. That's one of the books that I'm very much looking forward to reading this summer. Is Corpse Mouth, which is an amazing title. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a collection of my new collection of stories, and uh, I think I think the ebook is available now. Uh, it's just my publisher, Ross Lockhart. He was in the hospital for a month with mm. like diverticulitis related issues and with actually corpse mouth. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> 
and dead ass. And uh, yeah. <laughs> sounds bad. It sounds like rock. Yeah, both yeah, ends. You, you don't want you don't want that. Um, but anyway, so and supply chain issues and blah blah blah. So hopefully the book. Um, uh, Paul and I are supposed to be doing a thing together at the Strand, uh, July July seventh. July seventh. So I'm I'm really hoping the book is going to be, you know, the physical book is going to be present there. But but thank I you, so. I appreciate the uh, the shout out. Or maybe it'll be John and me puppets, like our puppet versions. That only would be awesome. And everybody's like, "There's no hands holding them. Who's operating these things?" <laughs> They're floating, just like a drawer. Which was also awesome. The explanation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It all comes What's, together. What am I talking about? Read the fucking book and you'll find <laughs> out. There you go. Um, Brennan, where can people follow you? I don't know if we normally do that, but fuck it. I'm not going to answer yeah. the question. We absolutely do not, but I'll just steal everybody else's answer. <laughs> you can find me on social media at my name. Um, oh, John, I, I meant to ask you in all seriousness and same for you, Paul, because you guys have some. You, we all have these tribes of people that we have friends with and like Brennan's coming out with, uh, was it five books in the next like year or two or whatever. It's, it's obnoxious and it goes against the patient's grain. We've been stressing, <laughs> no, but I bring that up because he's one of my best friends, but you hate him. I No, I, I, <laughs> I don't even give a shit how biased I sound because he's a fucking good writer. Do you guys, do you guys ever, or did you in the beginning kind of feel cautious because it would seem like clear biased opinions coming out of your mouth about your friend or, or did you guys never care? I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. I mean, in John's case, it was always easy because his fiction is amazing. So I've never had any any sort of moral quandary. Now, no, other no, people I, I talk about. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, I think that's the thing is that Paul and I sort of connected. We were on a panel together um, at ReaderCon and um and I bought his book from him after that. And, and then, yeah, we just kind of like, like the root of our friendship was, was respect and admiration for one another's work. I mean, I, I can still remember reading um, the little sleep. Um, and I got to the end of that book and I was like, Holy, Holy shit. This is like a real novel, you know, like, like it wasn't like sometimes you read stuff by friends or acquaintances or whatever. And you're like, eh, it's not really a novel it's just right, a right, right. you know it's it's okay you know but like this was the kind of thing that like i just could have picked up i could have gone into a bookstore picked up and just read and be like oh okay wow and, and i was like so blown away i felt the same way when i read sarah langan's um first novel that that like i was mm-hmm. was so blown away that somebody i knew that like one of my friends had actually written like a real book like this you know and um and it is kind of funny i don't i don't think that ever for me anyway i, I don't think that ever was an issue with with Paul or with Laird or Cisco or or Sarah, Stephen, you know, like like Victor Laval, like like there were these people who just like the integrity of their work spoke for itself. And if somebody wanted to like say, oh, he's just your friend, fine, go read the book. You know, you don't believe me, go read the book and 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 then shut up. <laughs> that's an excellent answer. And John um, likes everything, as he established earlier. I do. That's true. I, I like everything. I walk around. I'm like, look at this it's menu. Brilliant. This menu is terrific. Look at the drama. They put the panini next to the pasta. <laughs> Paul, do you have any final thoughts? No, uh, just uh, excited to hear about uh, Brennan Five. Wow, I feel like a slacker, but. Uh, <laughs> I look forward to hearing more uh, about uh, about your books that are coming out. Well, appreciate that. Thank Brian, you. Now's your time to say, well, this and that and so forth. 
<laughs> they are good. They're, I, they're I will not diverse. shamelessly plug, but thank you. <laughs> it's a diverse group. Um, yeah, I was only kidding. I expected to. You're very modest, sir. Um, Mr. Langan, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, what a blast to get to hang out with my buddy. Um, nice. Uh, I had uh, um, at, at work recently, my day job, I went from like I was sort of demoted, I guess you would say. It's fine. Anyway, one of my friends does tarot readings at work. And I was like, all right, what do I, you know, what do I have to look forward to next? And, you know, obviously it's, it's BS, but, but uh, the reading that she gave me was, was like, you know, pay attention to your friends and like, sort of like, know who your friends are, gather your friends around you, remain close to them, support them. They'll support you. Um, and that was really good advice. Um, and it remains really good advice. So I'm really happy to, to be able to, uh, to hang out with Paul and make fun of him. <laughs> group hug group hug there we go that's that's awkward that's, yeah. if we had puppets they could hug they yeah. could puppets, do, could. puppets could do a lot of things wait wait <laughs> wait wait is that a stickle spot <laughs> that's, no no oh ah, ha, ha. hang on there we go podcast wait, visuals here wait yeah. podcast visuals here <laughs> i'm glad there this is a video go. look Look, there we go. Finger, puppet, Finger friends. Zombie John and puppet zombie Paul. And they're looking in there. Oh, oh my God. What are they doing? Yeah, I actually they're have one that looks a little bit like me. Who is that? Alan Rickman. Uh, no, it, it's uh, Dr. Chilton from Hannibal. Show. I Come think, on. I All right, think so that's here's, Alan Rickman. Here's me and here's John. <laughs> it does look like Alan Rickman from Die Hard. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. We're, we're back no. to the we're back to the age jokes. Nice. Nice. <laughs> Smithers. We have oh. the hostages. I can't do the accent. This is clearly not the mid episode that John has been on. This is, I think, the top episode that John has appeared on. It top beats, ending for sure. No, I'm I'm trying to drag it down to mid. Everybody's going to be like, it was really great. Then Langan showed up, and it went totally mid. I'm gonna get Taff in this randomly and Mallerman see what happens. <laughs> All right, I thought someone's got to jump in. Brennan, what, any final thoughts? <laughs> I don't want to make me uh, Mallerman killed it. Mallerman. Yeah, the Mallerman thing just—I brought it right down. <laughs> How do I top puppets? I I don't. Um, All right, Paul, my one, final one, thoughts. One other thing, no, shut up. Um, one other thing I wanted to throw out, um, and you know, I wrote it down and then realized I didn't have a question about it. Is I just I absolutely loved the. Um, providence locale in your in your story and i'll be very interested to see you know how readers who aren't from the area respond to it i mean i've Mm. lived 20 minutes from providence all my life um but it's it's kind of one of those things like you can't understand water fire unless you've been to water fire um and uh i've now found out that if you compliment paul tremblay online about his inclusion of water fire water fire will find it and retweet it Um, oh nice yeah just you know fun fact um but it's the the atmosphere is kind of captured in there um you know nights on thayer street um shows at lupo's in the strand It, it just it it sucked me in and I, I hope that even people who haven't, <clears throat> excuse me, who haven't been to those venues and, and those places will kind of relate it to something that they spent their teens doing, their 20s doing, and just kind of let the atmosphere envelop them. 
Um, I, I love this book, man. I, I can't wait for people to read it. Uh, it is out July 5th, July, July 4th. Yeah. July 5th, and, uh, yeah. Everybody should go buy it. Thank you. No, I, you guys honor me. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I, I mean, that's the hope. I mean, that was actually the danger too. I probably shouldn't go on too long, but like, you know, putting stuff like that in, it's like had to figure out, oh, is, would that work for a reader? Or is that just in there for me and for other people that have experienced it? So <laughs> hopefully through the magic of fiction, it works for readers who don't live near Boston or Providence. Mm-hmm. It conjured up images of, cause my wife um, went to college at Rick. Uh, Rhode Island College. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent a lot of time there before we moved to Jersey. So it, it made me think of different sections that because I've traveled the same parts as you. And that's mm-hmm. pretty awesome, man. Um, my final thoughts are, uh, Paul, we've wanted, seriously, we've wanted to talk to you for a while. It's been a real pleasure. We'd love to have you back. Mr. Yeah, absolutely. This was a lot of fun. Mr. Langan, it is always a pleasure talking to you, man. You are one of the funniest bastards I know. So appreciate the laughs. And for listeners, like, do I do I amuse you? You do like a clown. Are you sitting on the floor now? <laughs> no, I just I just move back and forward. I I just yeah. my uh, uh. my my body accordions up and down. <laughs> like like you know the Ken Russell film, Lair the White Worm. Yes, well, that's yeah. I, I just. Uh, I can't wait to see what fan art is going to come out of that comparison. God, that's a weird <laughs> image. Uh, I, I was just going to say that, like, it's funny because you'll keep a straight face, John, and then, like, you'll bust out and say something ridiculous. And I don't know how to take you sometimes, but I love it. And I, I No, that's that's on. that's the, the essence of, of my relationship with just about everybody I know, Paul especially. <laughs> yeah. He's like, how is it? I'm like, it's shit. And he's like, I don't know. You know, so... <laughs> Did you like talking to just me and Paul today? It was great. It was great. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Hey, you getting up with me sometimes. So this has been great. Next episode is with Edward Lee. Can't wait to talk to that guy. He is. Uh, you know what I like, Patrick? I like that at least you didn't go on about your five books that you've got coming out in the next whatever. And you were just like, let me talk about my books and me and me, 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 me. And five. And in Spanish, five is Sanko. And Sanko. All this kind of stuff. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, I was just like, come on, man. You I'm, know? Just, <laughs> I'm just working. I am a narcissistic son of a bitch. Right. You were just like, Sanko. You were like, eins, by drei, fum, vier. You know, or German, I, I guess. Yeah, he went from no. Spanish to German. Yeah, but, uh, John Langan, aggressive polyglot. That <laughs> well, wasn't funny. Sorry, it's too late. You you lagged. <laughs> I couldn't. Hear, I really couldn't. Uh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, next episode, Edward Lee. It's been a real pleasure with you, Brennan, Mr. Langan. I don't know why I keep calling Mr. Langan, John Langan, and Paul Tremblay. Hope you guys have a great night. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. You guys too.